The Legendarium Podcast is brought to you by, by you. So please visit patreon.com slash legendarium to, to support the show. But for now, welcome, welcome to, to the, the Legendarium. I guess I'm not as wise as Ken yet. <laughs> yeah, I'll you're get not. there. I'm, that's what I'm saying. I, I'm a, I'm I'm but almost don't, speechless at that, Craig. <laughs> but don't worry. Sense the tone, Todd. <laughs> hey, everybody. Hey, Todd. How'd you like that new music? I like it a lot. Good. I, I hope everybody gets used to it. You can yell at me on Reddit. Anyway, let's uh, actually... Are they going to yell at you for something anyway? Well, I mean, obviously. <laughs> Haven't they already? <laughs> let's start the episode. Welcome, everybody, to the Legendarium Podcast. I am Craig Hanks, your host. And over there, he awoke during the song of creation. And that's the whole joke. That's just how old he is. It's Todd Wente. <laughs> Back in my day. And I've tried every single yellow ring in the room, but I just can't get away from Ken Johnson. Dude, I feel like the podcast jackdaw. And he's a few silver apples short of a tree of life. It's Ryan Bruckman. Yeah, I'll just give you a shrubbery, I guess. <laughs> a shrubbery. A shrubbery of life. Shrubbery All of right. health. So welcome, everybody, to the first of seven episodes on the Chronicles of Narnia. You might ask, okay, with some of these other books, like with The Wheel of Time and with uh, a lot of the Sanderson books, you tend to do multiple episodes on each book. Uh, why are you only doing one per book? Well, the answer is because this book is literally shorter than a single chapter from The Wheel of Time. <laughs> so... Uh, I think we're going to be safe doing a single uh, a single episode on each book. Anyway, welcome, guys. Welcome back. Welcome, Todd, yeah. who hasn't been a regular for a little while. It's It's been about a year. Last year was a really difficult year, so I'm looking forward to being back uh, on a more regular basis. Was it a difficult year because you weren't here as much? Uh, that, too. That, too. <laughs> it was a difficult year because he was a regular. Oh, oh. Nice. Uh, Potty humor, and I've only been back for five minutes. Thank you. So uh, today we are starting our Narnia episodes with the magician's nephew, Craig. Now this this is why this is a point of some contention, I gather. But we'll get to that in just a moment. I do want to very quickly just encourage everybody to swing by Reddit. The legendarium.reddit.com is where you can join the conversation, and uh, and I hope that you that you will do so if you have not yet. We tend to pick up some new uh, some new listeners with each new series that we do. So if you are new to the Legendarium, please stop by our Reddit page there. You can also go find us on Facebook and on Twitter and maybe some other places uh, that I've completely forgotten about by now. But you can also go to thelegendariumpodcast.com uh, if you want to send us an email or something there. We're huge on MySpace. I... Boy, I hope we not. still have that voicemail box. Is that <laughs> we do? It's actually, yeah, we they're at the bottom of our website. So go to the legendariumpodcast.com. At the bottom of any page, there's a little orange button and it says like leave a voicemail or send a voicemail or something yeah. like that. And uh, and you can. Has anybody used it? In like... Hey, not, hey, you not in a little it. while. Yeah, yeah, during our Wheel of Time episodes, we had a few people sending in things, uh, but I would love to get more. So if you have comments on 
uh, on the Narnia books that we're reading or anything else, or honestly, if you just want to yell at us, or I'm actually thinking that little PSA that we have up front where for Patreon, um, I'm kind of thinking of farming that out. If anybody wants to, uh, to read oh. that little credit for us up top, uh, I think that'd be pretty cool. Nice. So if you would like to do that, just write down the actual words that you heard. It has to be under 12 seconds and send that to me uh, via voicemail. I think that would be really awesome. That would be cool. Um, anyway, so I think that just about covers it. Now, I, I think we need to talk about Narnia. And I think we need to talk about why we're talking about the magician's nephew first. Why have you offended so many people by starting with the magician's nephew? So I here's what I gather. I could be wrong. People are welcome to to uh, yell at me and give me like their real reasons but I think that the uh, the the subconscious reason <laughs> for this is that there's there's a club, there's a club of people who take their literature really seriously, and it obviously that's not us. <laughs> um, no, but what I mean is, so there are people who know their Lewis really well, and if you're in the club then you understand that you just, you're not going to get all the references and you're not going to understand where his mind was at if you're not reading it in the order that he wrote it. Um, and so they, they, under, they know these books and they know all the references and they know all the ins and outs. They know the timeline of like the, the history and where England was at at the time and where Lewis was at at the time and et cetera, et cetera. And so they get all this stuff. And so they, they know, okay, you got to start with Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and then you can go in publication order. For the rest of us, it makes perfect sense, I think, to do it the way that, uh, was it HarperCollins? That, yeah, it's the HarperCollins chronology. Yeah, that Harper was Collins actually taken they, from C.S. Lewis himself. Exactly. They, so they got a hold of the books and they said, well, you know, let's put it in chronological order. If people want to read the story of Narnia, then they should start... You know, much like you would with, uh, say, oh, I don't know, maybe the Bible with the creation <laughs> myth and then go on from there. Right. And, uh, and so they started argument with the... to make, though, <laughs> what's that? <laughs> That's a dangerous argument to make because by that very logic, it's like, well, then I've got to start with the Silmarillion and then move into the Hobbit. And then no, I'm just I'm just explaining kind of why <laughs> why it makes sense for Harper Collins to have done what they did. Yeah. Um. And so yeah, there's a on on Wikipedia's Chronicles of Narnia page they put the quote that Harper Collins used to justify this, and uh, so this is Lewis making the case for chronological order, and he says the series was not planned beforehand. When I wrote The Lion, I did not know I was going to write any more. Then I wrote, wrote Prince Caspian as a sequel and didn't think there would be any more. And when I, uh, when I had done The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, I felt quite sure it would be the last, but I found I was wrong. So perhaps it does not matter very much in which order anyone reads yeah. them. I'm not even sure all the others were written in the same order in which they were published. Yeah. And, you know, it's, I, I don't think he cared that much, and I don't think you all should either. So, I don't know. Oh, that's just wow. Me. The Not any, page is just lighting up now, I'm and, sure. And we certainly don't. <laughs> I literally, don't. originally, sorry, Brian. But literally, originally, when Craig and I talked about it, we took about three <sighs> seconds and went publication order or chronological. Start with Magician's Nephew. Cool. Done. The end. That was it. Yeah. And I, having not really gone through the series or not remembering much about it, 
I, I'm sure that there are pieces that carry over in other books, but as a whole, I'm pretty sure that these are all standalone children's stories. Mm-hmm. You don't have to know the, you don't have to know the creation. You don't have to know the, to read yeah. any one of these. Yeah, I, I think something that I'll come back to a lot. I I don't remember a ton about the series, but I can remember tidbits here and there, and I can remember the general feeling. And now, after reading the Magician's Nephew, I think I'll come back to this a lot, and that is that. Lewis didn't take this that seriously, and neither should you. No. Um, and so, yeah, so that I, I think I'll use that quite a bit. That's that's not to say that the things that are discussed in the series are not, are serious, not serious or valuable. Yeah. It's just he wasn't writing this as a major commentary on life or anything like that. No, I think, I think um, there will be a lot of comparisons between Lewis and Tolkien. And Always. We'll get, we'll get to why that is in just a moment, but... Um, uh, I think it's an apt comparison because where Lewis, or I'm sorry, where Tolkien was kind of founding a new generation of um, of genre literature, uh, Lewis was not. You can read this very much in the mode of a mid-century children's author. Yeah. And, and it fits beautifully with other types of books of the time, right? And so he wasn't trying to break any new ground uh, except <laughs> well he might have been sowing in Tolkien's fields a little bit but uh, again we'll get there uh, anyway he wasn't trying to break new ground the way that Tolkien was and so he that's what I mean when I say he wasn't taking it that seriously he wasn't agonizing over the the world creation and kind of that sort of thing right there's right. There's, there's something that's grown up in our in in the last half of the of the 20th century of of making epic works i mean you know now if you write a novel and it's anything under 500 pages people say to you people will say well you know didn't you have anything to say um but at the time that c.s lewis was writing this and and going back and looking at most of c.s lewis's works almost all of them whether you're looking at screw tape letters you're looking at um the problem of pain. You're lo- or some of his more some of his more serious works, or you're looking at these. They're all hovering right around the 200 page level. And oh, that's right. Back when these were being written, you're writing it longhand, or you're doing it on an old fashioned typewriter that you have to punch the keys in order to make them work. Uh, there might be there might be more than just uh, the amount of storytelling that you wanted to do that was limiting how many pages would be involved in a volume. And so. You know, looking at looking at the scope that he was willing to and to create and work within, and being able to keep it within two hundred pages, I think is pretty astounding. Sure, um, especially when compared to Brandon Sanderson. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing we might end up referencing a lot is uh, the Wheel of Time, and if you're coming to our Narnia <laughs> series in you know three years or five years or something like that, and you're wondering. Over the next seven episodes, you think to yourself, why do they keep talking about the Wheel of Time? It's because we just finished that one. And it's the exact opposite, (laughs) fantasy-wise. It is the exact opposite of Narnia. So I think we'll end up talking about it quite a bit. Um, I don't know. Maybe Game of Thrones would be the opposite of Narnia. But anyway. (laughs) I think that's probably the polar opposite. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But you get the idea. So, okay. So let's, let's talk... Uh, do we want to get into the story yet, or do we still want to kind of set the table a little bit, talk about C.S. Lewis, talk about uh, uh, mid-century England, that sort of thing, because we're experts on that. <laughs> I was going to say, I probably should have prepared differently if that's <laughs> where we were at. <laughs> what are you talking about? I watched The Crown. 
<laughs> so uh, this is uh, I, I will mention uh, just stuff off the top of my head, and and we will bring this up more later as we go. But uh, Lewis and Tolkien were founders of the Inklings, mm-hmm. uh, um, a literary club, uh, kind of writers' club in Oxford. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the middle of the 20th century, and they were they were good friends, and they helped each other write books and all that. Now, this is important because of a few reasons. Um, basically, okay, I'm just going to come right out and say it. Lewis ripped off a whole bunch of crap that he heard from <laughs> Tolkien at those meetings, and I don't know this, and I, I actually would like to uh, do a little research on this, and people can hop on Reddit and let me know if they uh, have any sources on this, but I wonder if this was a bit of a sore spot, because I know that their relationship ran into trouble uh, as they aged and as uh, as their works were getting published, and they didn't stay close friends for a long, long time. Um, and it, they weren't, um, I, I, I wouldn't say that they hated each other or anything like that, but they, they definitely weren't uh, close friends at the time of their deaths. And I wondered if there was any sort of uh, bad blood, because as I read The Magician's Nephew, I could hear, or I, I could kind of picture all these people at their inkling meetings and uh, Lewis is listening to some of these tales from Tolkien's Silmarillion, and he's going, "Oh, ooh, that I like that. Ooh, I, I think I'm gonna adapt that and use that in my creation myth too." You know, and so it made me wonder a little bit. Um, I know you guys don't have the answers to that, and maybe we'll. So maybe we'll have to go find them. But uh, Todd, have you ever been part of a writers group or? Uh, a readers group besides this one i have um and and continue to to be um in fact i've got a meeting with one that's coming up later on this month um one of the one of the dangers that comes with with writers groups is that when you hear someone working with something and you find that it fits something that you've been trying to work with as well um trying to trying to respect that other writer's idea and yet still then take that inspiration and move with it and use it in your own material that that's a that's a challenge um, and it's a challenge that sometimes is hard to frame. It's hard to articulate. Um, and sometimes it's just a, a challenge that it's, it's hard to ignore. Yeah. And so you walk away from it. Um, I, I think though that one of the, one of the big challenges that I think both Lewis and Tolkien were, were dealing with. And I think that every writer who tries to create a new mythos has to deal with is that when it comes to creation myths, there's, there are only so many ways to go about it. And so trying to find, at least in, in, in my feeling, trying to find new and different ways to cause this creation to occur um, becomes, a, becomes a sticking point. And so as you compare notes, as you, as you compare ideas, as you compare challenges, and, and someone expresses to you, oh, I, I handled it this way, I handled it this way, it's, it's really tough to then turn around and say, well, that was brilliant. I'm going to have to be even more brilliant and come up with something right. totally different. And so I, I relate a little bit to the to the difficulty that may have existed and to the, the obvious parallels that wind up appearing as we read through the material, if you read with that, with that focus. But I think the other, there's one other thing to think about. And I'm, and I think it's that Lewis and Tolkien were writing for different populations. And so it's very likely that as, as Lewis is thinking about it to himself and listening to, to Tolkien talk about these things, he may have just said to himself, well, 
no one's going to, no one that's reading my stuff is going to read his. I, it, it probably won't make any difference and no one will be offended if I borrow some of that information. As I recall, this, uh, the line, the witch in the wardrobe, at least, was the result of a race that they were having to see who could write, uh, yeah, mythology for England or whatever it was that they were trying to do at the time. Somebody will have to remind me. Um, and so Tolkien was writing long-handed. C.S. Lewis was writing on a typewriter. True. Look at the well, two of them go. I'm kidding. I don't know if that's C. how it was going. Well, no, I mean, C.S. Lewis was definitely, as we've said, it, it to, to say that he didn't care would be too flippant, but he, he was a lot less careful, uh, in his methods, in his writing. And so Lewis says, oh, we're going to write a children's story, a fairy story. Done. You know, he, he craps these things out. Uh, Tolkien spent 17 years on the Lord of the Rings. You know, it's... We send angry he, emails to he, Craig at thelegendarianpodcast.com. Did you, did you <laughs> I, say just, he craps these things out? Was, yeah. that, was that exact, your exact words? He so, craps these things out. All I mean is that he writes them quickly. <laughs> I didn't go with, you I just know, pictured, he could do this in his sleep, uh, you know, with his eyes closed. <laughs> picture picture these two, these two classic kingdom to, gentlemen know. saying, you crap these out. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I wish I crapped books out, I'll tell you that. Especially ones that sell like 10 million copies. Yeah, no exactly. kidding. Yeah, Last yeah. for 60 years. Uh, so anyway, I, I so I wonder if that contributed as well, where he says, oh, well, thanks for all the all the great ideas, Tullers, and goes off and writes his book in a weekend and says, here you go. Did he really call them Tullers? Yeah. Wow. You know, the other thing, that's, the other thing that may have contributed a little bit um, to their... Uh, to their relationship not necessarily gelling very well toward toward the end of their lives, and also toward the way that they look at these creation myths is their eventual their eventual uh, arrivals as far as their religious processes. C.S. Lewis was um, very much an atheist before um, his experiences with Tolkien, um, and later in life he becomes converted, uh, a converted Christian. But he joins the Church of England. Uh, while Tolkien remains, uh, if I remember, up through his death, a very devout Catholic. A Roman Catholic, yes. And um, having, having spent some time in England um, and, and having uh, experienced situations where I, where I had conversations with people from both sides of that fence, there's not an awful lot of love lost between those two groups. And I wonder if that might have uh, some, some know, impact that, on that as well. That definitely stuck in Tolkien's craw a little bit. Oh, I'm sure. And from C.S. Lewis's standpoint, I'm, I'm sure that it was one of those pieces where it's like, you know, hey, let's, let's agree to disagree. Um, but as we all know, that's ridiculous. This is 2018, Todd. You don't agree <laughs> to disagree. Well, yeah, not any more than they did in the 1940s. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'll just run very quickly through through a, a few of the things, if people are wondering, so, well, I, n I never read the Silmarillion. What what did he, you know, quote <laughs> unquote, borrow? rip That's, off? Yeah. Um, there are a few things. Let me go back to the beginning. Um, oh, there's uh, uh, what's the, uh, Uncle Andrew, the the magician. He mentions his godmother, who was one of the last fairy people in England. And uh, this this is kind of referencing an idea that Tolkien had that England is the last remnant or was the last remnant of fairy on Earth. And uh, there was a, the Lonely Island. This is where the, the elves all sail to. Uh, it's representing death or whatever. Anyway, they sail to this island. And uh, 
over the millennia that becomes England. And uh, so anyway, so there's this idea that the fairies, the last fairies were left in England. And so this is where the last little bit of magic in the world is. Okay. Um, the creation of the world uh, performed through song is a Tolkien-esque creation. Uh, I looked at, I, I did not make an exhaustive search and I'm hardly a scholar on the subject. So somebody can please correct me if you need to. But my understanding is that there are no creation myths on earth, at least no like legit, not made up by a single person writing a book, creation myths that involve song. This was a Tolkien original. Um, and he started that long before Lewis ever wrote The Magician's Nephew. Uh, and he would have heard that. So uh, creation through song, the two, the gold and the silver tree. Now those were not Tolkien originals. I believe those come from Norse mythology. So I, I can excuse that one a little bit more. Oh, oh, what was the other one? Oh, obviously um, magic rings. That's also oh. not a Tolkien original. Um, that comes down through a few different sources, probably through Wagner and then down to Tolkien, but uh, uh, magic rings? I don't know. Maybe. Oh, were there, were there magic rings things. in Tolkien? <laughs> Somewhere. Somewhere. Um, anyway, I, I think there's one more that I'm missing, but that should be uh, enough to get people started a little <laughs> bit. There was there were some ideas behind Lighting the torches of the angry mobs. <laughs> no, and I, that's the thing. Kill is the like, beast. I'm not sure if I feel angry about it myself i i just knowing what i do about tolkien and his work i'm like oh come on you can do better than this lewis yeah you're more creative than this but oh well it's not that big a deal to me but anyway um i have other lots and lots of other things to say but i think you guys should say things now including you ryan you haven't said much today at all that's uh, because i don't have a ton of i i have very limited familiarity with the works of c.s lewis um Screw tape letters. You you read Richard the magician's Wardrobe. nephew though, right? Um, <laughs> yes, I, I did. I did spend two hours this morning and read it, so it is fresh in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> and I I wish I was joking about that, but that's a legit thing. Um, and I you know I'll have a little bit more to, to add when we get to story pieces here because that's that's what I'm focused on here is the elements of this story. And I. I'm actually really surprised, I shouldn't say surprised, but one of the things that I have enjoyed about this little uh, dabble into what we will call children's literature of the era is how different it is from children's literature now. Hmm. Um, I'm kind of curious as to what age group this was written to. You guys have an idea? To... My guess would have been around 8. 8 to 12. I would have, yeah, yeah, primary that's kind of what I was thinking there. But I... I think about the books that I was reading at age 12, and I, admittedly, I had a, a little bit more in fantasy or whatever, but Animorphs does not sit there quite on the same tier <laughs> as C.S. Lewis in terms of teaching in a very straight way, you know, the battle of good versus evil mm -hmm. and things like that. So I, I'm kind of curious as to what perhaps has caused our children's literature to get away from being more direct about their moralistic right. teachings. I, I, this is super simplistic. I'm sure there are lots and lots of factors that would have gone into it, but Disney, 
Um, Disney has, and, and before you put your back up, Ryan, I can, <laughs> I can see Careful. him just like my jowls are ready to shake, Craig. Yeah, exactly. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. Um, all I don't mean to say that Disney is bad uh, or teaches bad lessons or anything like that, but Disney did simplify it. That was yes. That was like the order of the day: simplify, simplify, simplify. And so, children's literature at the time whether it's this or something like you could go back and read the hobbit for heaven's sake that was written for like eight to ten year olds and adults have a hard time reading it now mm-hmm. um yeah. and so what disney did was well tolkien called it the disneyfication of uh, yes. fairy tales right you're just simplifying everything and once you get on that track you can call it a slippery slope or whatever you want but eventually we get to where we are now where it's like, oh, kids can't handle X. Kids can't handle that sort of thing. Um, where in a story like this, there's not a whole lot of, you know, death and destruction going on, but there are really, really heavy themes of yeah. Yeah. Uh, death, his sick mother, the evil witch, who is really quite menacing in a few different parts of the story. His drunk abusive that sort of thing. Uncle. But anyway, so I, I want to get your take on my idea of the Disneyfication. No, I've, I've absolutely, I can back that idea because that has been, that's actually a very open criticism of Disney from its early years. Um, I, I would almost, the only thing I would argue a little bit is Disney is the flagship of that movement. Sure. You know, yeah, absolutely. That's, They're not the only ones. Yeah. It's, it, as new mediums came into being, the idea of animated storytelling, mm-hmm. um, things like that, it, it became. It, it, we talk about it every time we do a film, a a movie, a book that's made into a f- film. Yeah. The idea that you can't you can't carry all that into a movie. Like you've got to simplify. You got to do that. So I'm actually totally okay with that. And I would say, yeah, that I could see that being the cause of our children's everything is uh, making that shift. Um, my question would be then, is it possible for us to either shift back or how can we tell a little bit heavier stories or, or carry a little bit heavier elements into a more simplified story? Well, I, I think there is already some of that happening. I don't know if Disney owned Pixar at the time, but if they did, bravo. And if not, well, good for gobbling them up, I guess. Uh, but Finding Nemo? Uh, my kid used to love Finding Nemo, and I mean, it was a daily thing at our house. Mm-hmm. I probably saw that movie 75 times, and it, that is rough stuff for a lot of it, that it is dark, scary. difficult, yeah. scary. Mm-hmm. His freaking mom gets eaten at the beginning of the story, you know, that sort of thing. And all of their children. Right. It Except is, one. It is rough stuff, um, and so I think there is room in in film, which is obviously the dominant form of media now i think there's room for heavier concepts um, and to give those to kids Mm -hmm. uh, in an appropriate way Uh, and so i i think it is happening and i want it to happen more and i i hope it does but i think that what we're seeing when we're reading this now is um the dominant medium of the day was books Mm -hmm. that's what you had that Mm -hmm. was your entertainment that's what your family read together you know that's what you did together you gathered around and read something and and so when you're doing that as a family all the time from the age of nothing to the age of eight you're so used to 
stories and words and uh, understanding sentence structures and following along with paragraphs and all that stuff that it's easier to do this sort of thing than it would be now for a kid who grew up in front of a screen and is trying to shift over to books mm -hmm. right yeah so todd i think the idea of 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 moving the pendulum of, of swinging back the other direction is really part of what we do here. And I, and I don't mean to put our, put what we do in this little podcast on a, on a pedestal, but I, but I pedestal I, away. I, homie. I, I disagree. I think we are that but, important, but I, but I think that we are, we are a part of that, of a, of a consciousness of an awareness that there is much to be learned from the reading of the material that is lost in the viewing of the material. And I think that there is a there is a segment of the population that will resist that at all opportunity and at all cost. Um, and, and and bless their hearts, they they will continue to drive much of, of what is done in, in other areas and other mediums. But things that we do, things that other people like us do in getting together and saying, no, let's revisit these pieces and let's find what was missing when we just watched it. Um, we haven't, we haven't had a, a film adaptation of the magician's nephew, but when we come to, uh, the line, the witch in the wardrobe, Prince Caspian, the voyage of the Dawn Treader, when we get to those, we're going to have an opportunity not only to talk about what was different in those books, but also what was, uh, what was lost in the retelling of them on the on the film version, and I think that 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 question that's what you're asking me to do a lot of work. <laughs> no, I'm asking you to do the work that you're going to do anyway, and just <laughs> encapsulate it down so that we can do it for our listeners. Fortunately, the uh, movies are about as long as the books, exactly. <laughs> Al almost, almost right. Um, and that and that that shift that that pendulum swing is part of what we're doing. And so I think that there is a there is certainly a statement. I think there's another thing that happens with this. And while these were designed and written for eight to ten year olds, uh, eight to twelve year olds, most of us. I was talking with my wife about this earlier. She discovered these books at the age of eight. I discovered these books at the age of 10, 10, 10 11. Um, children who discover these books around the age of eight to ten, they become pivotal pieces in their lives, and they become foundational pieces for the kind of literature that they pursue later on. Uh, my wife and I both really enjoy fantasy, uh, fantasy fiction and, and science fiction as well. Yes, but fantasy fiction is a piece of that. And we can both trace it back to C.S. Lewis. Um, I think that there are adults who, when they are being exposed to uh, mythic kinds of creations, they look at huge book series and they say, oh, I can't get into that. Um, sometimes because their children bring home something that was designed for them. Sometimes it's a Harry Potter. Sometimes it's C.S. Lewis. And so I think when we have people that experience these books, because they are approachable, because they are designed for a uh, for a, a faster read, they become part of swinging that pendulum and getting people once again in, engaged in the process of reading and of absorbing that information and starting to think differently because of what we read, not just because of what we see or what we are programmed with as a result of somebody simplifying it for us later on. So let me ask a question of Ken. Um, in the vein of what Todd's talking about here, maybe people rediscover these books, and, and I don't know, maybe they were never, you know, quote-unquote lost to begin with, but it doesn't seem like people talk about them as much as they did 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Right. Um, but let's say people started reading these books again. How much of a problem do you think it would be if they're starting with either Magician's Nephew or we could even say um, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe with the time in which they're written because they are rooted in their time? 
the magician's nephew is set around uh, the turn turn of yeah. the 18th or sorry turn of the 19th into the 20th century mm-hmm. uh, in London. Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is going to be set about 40 years later during the Blitz, um, and so and there there are a lot of things that are talked about. We'll just stick with the magician's nephew for now when we have the horse drawn cab. Um, and we <laughs> have the lamppost, and we have uh, cobblestones, and there, there's a lot of references to this sort of thing. Do you feel like that possibly trips kids up and keeps them away from it, or do you think it's just a matter of uh, we need to have notated versions that that give you know little marginal notes that no. says this is what London was like back in the day or whatever? I think that would be cool. In terms of teaching, you know, giving kids a little bit of extra learning because sure. they, they don't get enough of that. But I, I don't think it's past the scope of a, of a, a child's especially uh, imagination to to kind of infer what's going on and and everybody kind of does it uses their yeah. own point of reference and and then goes from there. But it, they can they can figure out what's what's uh, what one pretty of my well, one of my but. favorite things is reading stuff like this when I was a little kid. I would just make up definitions for things I didn't understand right. until it made some sort of sense. And then you go back and read it 10, 20 years later and you're like, Oh, I was way off. Oh yeah. I, <laughs> I did the same thing. I, and I think that's part of, that's part of the benefit for children. And, and we do it all the time with fantasy stuff. I mean, Harry Potter, you know, you've got all that magic and kids don't have never seen, you know, the magic or anything, but they, they can picture it in their minds or, or they can see from pictures what old stuff look like and that, but it, it's fun. And it, it it inspires imagination, really, and right. that's what the point of the book is. I think the bigger problem is rooted in the fact that nobody talks to anybody anymore. Not that's kind of simplified, but but what parents and kids, for example, I they don't. I ask. can't get anybody to shut up every time I turn on Facebook. That's true, but but they're not. <laughs> it, there's a difference between. Talking, I'm just kidding, and discussing though. You know what I mean? Everybody's really, really ready to, yeah, to but throw you, out there. What do you mean? But but parents and kids, they don't talk. Kids and and their friends don't don't really they don't discuss things in depth. We were talking about uh, well, well, I can't remember what we were talking about earlier, but probably people, nothing because people don't talk anymore. We, well, so. and we get on so many different t- subjects so quickly that we'll say, oh, we were talking about Star Wars, and and I said. You know, I liked Rogue One. You were wrong. And, but that was it. That's as far as it went. And it wasn't a conversation that we were having, but that's yeah, the, that's the way already, conversations. Because we already did a freaking episode on it. Yeah. And I don't want to talk about we, it anymore. We did. But my, my point is in general conversation, that's how kids talk. I liked Rogue One. Rogue One sucked. You're stupid. That's it. You know, we don't, we've lost the, the. Art of communication so what of, of that, discussing with people. What does each that other. have to do with the magician's nephew? Bring it home for me. The the magician's nephew, going back to talking about how deep and detailed these books are in terms of, of conversation, of using your imagination, of of describing things, it, it gives you a chance to, to talk about the deeper meanings of of issues, to talk about what deeper than, oh, I like this. I didn't like this. Why? Why did you like this? Why did you not like this? Books like these that are designed for kids. Hopefully, well, back in my day, I used it there, Todd. It it was a chance for parents to talk about to their kids about, well, what did you think about this part of the book? What did you, and and for kids to actually think about critically about what they liked or didn't like and why this was right, this was wrong, and yeah. we we've kind of lost that. And yeah, I think uh, reading a book like this makes me realize just how much we've lost something like that. 
there's yeah there's a lot of a lot of discussion points in here ryan favorite possible discussion point like if you were reading this with your eight-year-old kid um what would be the thing you would kind of want to talk about them with the the crux of i'm and i will assume this is probably through most of narnia um is the difference of good and evil in in this world in, in narnia specifically there um that I feel like is painted pretty with a pretty heavy stroke through this. Um, and if I was talking to my kid, I'd learning to see and identify those things. Yeah. Because in this story, evil is a seven foot beautiful woman with a rage complex <laughs> that happens to, you know, which, the... which by the way, by itself sounds pretty hot. <laughs> Just throwing that out there. And especially when she's eating the apples. <laughs> there are lesser versions that you deal with, you know, uh, with uh, Uncle Andrew, and because um, he's also kind of this lesser evil at the beginning, sure. um, a minion of evil. He's the yeah. lesser of two evils. He's certainly it's, mischievous. Well, and it's actually there's it's one of the phrases that I marked when it came up the second time, and I have to get into the right book. Um, he says, "Those of us of it was something like those of us who understand this higher law." cannot be bound by the rules. Right. Yeah. So yes. that, that it creates this idea that at some point of understanding, you no longer the the normal the normal rules of the world don't apply to you. And there are times when I have felt that. Like if I understand something well enough, like, yeah, I get it. So you know what, I don't need to be worried about this, you know, these other things because I get it well enough that that's not going to be a problem for me. And I'm I'm above the law now. I'm above you know, like just you know, just let let me do. It. Trust me. It, yeah. In the end, it we come back to the ends will justify the means a little bit. Like sure. you'll you'll get it. Like driving through a red turn arrow, for example. Yeah, sure. <laughs> we know what Ken describes as evil. Um, I think that's all right. He cruises in the left lane. It's all. Oh my gosh. Yeah, Craig drove. We'll talk nuts. about evil. But that's because I'm going faster than him. To me, that's that's one of the core things that I would want to take out of the magician's nephew specifically and talk to my son about is. You know, being able to to identify some of those things yeah. and see it mm -hmm. for what it is. My, I think mine was really similar. The yeah, the maybe pivotal scene in the entire book, uh, Narnia has been created, created, and all the animals are talking animals now. And Diggory is sent on a quest. Mm -hmm. It's a very fast quest, but it's a quest nonetheless. And he and Polly uh, go to um, the Tree of Life. They're taken to the Tree of Life, and they meet the witch there. And his task is to get a fruit from the tree of life and bring it back to Aslan. And Aslan? I had the same thought. <laughs> what? It's okay. I, I was just going to let it go. Aslan? A Aslan. Aslan? Aslan. I literally almost said like F you into the microphone. <laughs> um, so his task is to take the fruit back to Aslan. <laughs> and, uh, and he does so. But when he's there at the tree, uh, he meets the witch. And she tells him, "What what are you doing? You you're you're getting the fruit because you want to take it back to your sick mom. Why don't you just do that? That's the whole purpose. Why are you following this uh, this weirdo lion's instructions? And that is for me. If I were talking with my kids, that would be the crucial conversation. Why didn't he just do that? That was the whole purpose. She's absolutely right. That's why he's here. He wants the fruit." The lion told him where the fruit is, and now he can take it back to his mom. And so 
essentially it comes down to well because the lion told me so well then so what and you can kind of have a conversation on that and essentially what it comes down to is what you're saying is what is the difference between good and evil because you have two sources of authority telling him two very different things both of and and i should say one of them truth in both of them and one of them makes perfect sense it makes logical sense and the other one doesn't at least not yet Mm-hmm. until you get um, the rest of the information until you get the rest of the information and so the idea of identifying what good looks like so that even if you don't understand everything that uh, is being told to you if you understand what is good and what is not good uh, then you can at least start on the right path right anyway that that would be kind of the lesson I'd be going for and there's there's multiple levels to it you can also go down depending on where and what they pull from it, because their answers should inform some of your response to, you know, it becomes a discussion about faith or honor or duty or things like that. You know, that's all part of, you can all piece that back into the discussion of of good and evil and and that. So, I think one of the other things that's, uh, one of the other (laughs) themes, I mean, obviously the the good and evil theme is is a huge piece of what, what was woven through all of the of the Chronicles of Narnia, but another one is is uh, loyalty, loyalty to friends. Um, there's a couple of moments where, um, and it's introduced at the very beginning, and it continues to be revisited all the way through. This idea of friendship between the friendship between Diggory and Polly, um, there is not just a there's not just a a casual friendship, but there's a responsibility to each other. Um, the idea at a couple of times where the witch doesn't pay any attention to Polly, she's only paying attention to Diggory, um, and, and that Diggory feels that he needs to make sure he doesn't lose Polly. Um, later on when the witch says, let's just go, well, I need to be with Polly. When uncle Andrew tries to convince him, no, let's just go. No, I have, I can't abandon Polly. There is a, a sense of, and, and, and maybe this is too big for an eight-year-old, but is, it is certainly a question and a theme of the day that we bear responsibility for others, that there, that there should be a responsibility among human beings to each other in difficult times. And maybe this is one of those things that comes from the fact that this was being written during the 1940s. This was being written during a time that, that when, when all of London, all of England, uh, was in a fight for its life and was, had been pretty much abandoned by the rest of the world, but not by each other. And so, um, as, as we look at that, there's a, a feeling of, or a concept of, we bear responsibility to see each other through, um, and, and this idea of loyalty to each other, um, loyalty to, to each other for no other reason than just because we are human, than just because we are in the same place in difficult circumstances and need to see each other through. I, I, I think that's another theme that would that would certainly be worth discussing with my children as we come through this. There's a there was a couple moments in earlier on that as you talk about that that uh, really actually struck home with me, uh, maybe a little more now than they would have in another part of my life or whatever. Um, the first was when they got back the first time. Yes. And she goes to she's going to leave and he asks and he says, "Will you will you come back?" Like wanting her like even though they had only had very little interaction basically up to this point and this little journey together they had it became important that she was there and i i appreciated that and then her response was well then you better apologize 
and <laughs> which I mean, there's there's some comedy and some humor to that, but to for a very small child, the need to have someone there, the need to have someone who has been through something with you, yes, became do you think, important. Do you think that's really that's not just for children though? No, I mean no. that's uh, it's almost the entire. That's a, that's uh, a very adult conceit concept. of marriage yes. is having somebody who's been through everything with you all the time and please don't go. Right. Yeah. Um, well, well then you'd better apologize. Well, okay. That's pretty accurate. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it was a very simple moment that really struck, struck home to me on that. Um, and then, uh, it was similar, a similar moment a few, a little bit before that when they're at the golden bell, and um, the narrator basically, you know, says that he, you know, and the only thing I can say is that he felt really sorry about actually doing, you know, where he blocks her from grabbing the ring and hits the bell. Um, shortly after that, when they're talking, I think it's when they're talking to the witch, or oh, it was ju- it was just before they the the script on the pillar is translated for them, and Polly says, "Well, we're not going to do it." You know, we don't need to know what the trouble is. We don't. Oh, yeah. So the yeah. script says something along the lines of, "You, if you ring this bell, something's going to happen, and if you don't, a magic spell will be placed on you, so that you'll always Just wonder wondering. what it was going to be." Yeah, you'll you'll yeah. go on. You'll be that. tormented. And she says, "Ring." No, I won't. Ring the <laughs> bell, or you'll have FOMO. You let's wanna, go. Do you want to hear? Do you want to hear what it was exactly? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Not that I don't have it marked or anything. Make your choice, adventurous stranger. Strike the bell and bide the danger. Or wonder till it drives you mad what would have followed if you had. No fear, said Polly. We don't want any such any danger. Oh, but don't see, don't you see it's no good, said Diggory. We can't get out of it now. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, sorry, go on. It, I, that moment for me was a big illustration. Like, I have people in my life that are Polly, that are the... And then you have me. <laughs> I am a 100% bell ringer. Oh yeah, I'm I'm a diggery too because it's like I, it would drive me nuts to not know to not yeah. invest and do that, and I think for me it was nice for even though it's a in a, a setting of with two children to see that those two can balance each other out and be important to each other. Yeah, um, I it, you know I, I I like the idea of children as uh, stand-ins for really anybody. Um, they can be stand-ins for other children. If you're coming at this book as a child, uh, then it's very easy to see yourself in their shoes. Uh, but even as an adult, really what we're talking about here is that Polly and Diggory are distillations of uh, of everything we know about the world as adults anyway. Absolutely. It's just kind of uh, simplified. Uh, well, there you go. There's that word again. It's mm-hmm. simplified and kind of purified a little bit. And... Uh, uh, it's, it's so it's easy to see ourselves in those situations. I, I really like it. It's yeah. funny to see it now being old instead of, you know, when I was young, because when I was younger, it was I'm like, sorry, I'm what, what are you old? Right. Very, very old. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, no, you're not. I even have a gray hair, but <laughs> I won't, I, ask, I won't ask I, where <laughs> it just reminds me. I, I took a class in college, um, as, uh, studying some, some of the theatrical arts and it was called the art of play. And the whole premise of the class, which has been one of the most life-changing classes I've ever had, was to get back to being able to play as a child plays with full commitment to the world becoming a reality and everything here. And the reason why it became, one of the reasons why that is so important, not just as a performer, is because 
it allows us the opportunity to simplify, like we get here, simplify problems, simplify things down to a point where we can manage them. You can make a real, you can make decisions based on it. You are welcome to try and tackle things as a complex level, but if you can approach something the way a child does, you tend to be able to, to a certain extent, take it in smaller bites and deal with it better. Um, which is why I think something like this, where, where we're talking about, you know, using children as our, our point of view in this, it really does work. It's not going to be a perfect fit for everyone every time, but that's, that's really at the core of the reason you get back to thinking like a child, acting like a child is so that you can simplify things. And now we get to the point where it, this person, I don't know if they're still listening or if they even bothered to start, but there was, a, there was a complaint on Reddit uh, when, I, when we announced that this was going to be the next series we were going to read. Uh, this person said, I can't believe we're doing Narnia. This sucks. I'm not a kid. I've been talking about these books since I was a kid. I'm done reading stuff about kids and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I, it didn't type it out because I, uh, you know, who knows how this sort of thing is going to come out. But, but exactly this, I, I said something later on Reddit to a different comment about how, you know, what, whether it's a kid's book or, or a quote unquote adult's book or whatever, if it's a good book, it's a good book. Um, and it, and it should hold up. I would say this is a good book and it's for the reasons we're talking about because, uh, Lewis here isn't just dealing with um, childish issues no. um, the way you might find in some other little kid's book. He's dealing with uh, things we all do. So anyway, I, I feel like we interrupted something Ken was saying. Did you want to continue your thoughts before oh, I, Todd goes on? No, I was I was uh, going to say I, I can see when I was younger that I was I could see me being a digger. He's like, I got to do this. I, I, but I... I I, I can see as I go on, especially the way life moves fast and everybody's got to do everything. And, and I, I joked about FOMO earlier about the fear of missing out. You know, I, I got to do it or else I won't be cool. But I can see there there's merit to Polly's thing about, I don't need to do that. I don't need, I, that's not worth my time. I, I'm good. You know, I, I yeah. can see merit to being able to turn back and say, I don't need that. I've got I guess, enough. I guess I'm not as wise as Ken yet. <laughs> yeah. I'll You're get not. there. That's, that's what I'm saying. I, I'm 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 don't, almost speechless at that, Craig. But don't worry. If if your wife doesn't kill sense, you, you'll get there. Sense the tone, Todd. <laughs> no, know the room. Know the room. That's why I said almost speechless. <laughs> All right, Todd. What did you get? What do you got for us? Uh, you know, it, uh, one one thing was a was a quick rebuttal, but I want, also want to change the direction of what we're talking about. The and and the quick rebuttal is this is not uh, this is not simple stuff. This is this is material that deals with perhaps one of the most powerful issues that we face in, in, in our lives, and that is, how do we deal with death? Um, there is a, it, there's the moment where um, Diggory goes up to uh, Aslan, and he's talking to him, and he, and he wants to ask about, how do I heal my mom? Um, and uh, and, and, he, and he's surrounded by all of this creation, all of this new birth, and he wants just some of that for his mom. And there's that moment where uh, and, and, and the way it reads in the book, my son, my son, Aslan said, Aslan, I know grief is great. Only you and I in this land know that yet. Let us be good to one another. Um, there's, and it's interesting that Diggory, Diggory hasn't even lost his mother yet. No, but he has had to deal with the fact that he probably will. 
those of us that read the book and, and, and are reading the book, coming back and revisiting the book, we kind of have, we kind of know something about the way that man, the way that time works in Narnia versus the way that time works in the real, in, in our world. And so I'm, I'm reading that and I'm saying to myself, Diggory has no knowledge, no idea that he's going to come back at exactly the point that he left. He's thinking my mom may already be dead because I've been here for days. Yeah. Um, and so he's, he's starting to process and deal with the fact that he may now be alone um, because his dad has been sent to India and may never come back. This idea of being alone. I remember talking to my dad, uh, and he will probably be mortified that I have mentioned him on a podcast. Um, but I remember talking to my don't, dad. Just don't tell him. He'll never know. <laughs> I know because he doesn't listen. Um, and, and he wouldn't. He would listen to about five minutes. He would say, I don't read any of those books. Um, They're for kids. But I, <laughs> but I, I, remember, I remember looking at my dad on the day that he lost his mom. And he said, I am now an orphan. And I had seen something in my dad that I had never seen before. And as I, as I was reading where Aslan talks, it then says that Diggory looked up at him and he saw that, that there were tears in Aslan's eyes as well. And th at that moment, I, I, I said to myself, this is heavy hitting stuff for an eight-year-old kid. So for everybody who says these are just children's stories, these are stories about life that happen to be written in a way that they are approachable for children, but I think that they are eminently useful for us. Yeah. So having said that, can I, can I change the direction of a couple of things? Uh, Todd, you're, you're shaking and smiling, so <laughs> I guess we're getting into something lighthearted. A little bit lighthearted, okay. yeah. Okay, all right, let's hear it. I want to talk about, there, there, were, there were two things that, and, and I mean, there's lots and lots and lots of heavy, heavy stuff, and if you guys hate me, we can go back to heavy stuff. Um, but there were two things that I, that I caught on that, for me, made this book really fun. The first one was the fact that the godmother was godmother, a uh, fairy godmother named Lefay. Did anybody else immediately <laughs> go Morgan Lefay? Morgan Lefay. Uh, okay. Okay. Good. Um, well, I mean, Lefay would just mean the fairy, right? But but for me, I immediately went to oh Morgan Lefay. Sure. Yeah. Let's tie this into the Arthurian legends. Why don't we? Yeah. Uh, everything else is. That. Well, it's it's magic. It's it's Merlin and Morgan, and they were supposed to have lived forever. So I kind of got a kick out of that. I went oh okay, I'll keep that. Um, but the other one that I that I, that made me think a lot is that I think this is one of the places where. And my wife and I were talking about this. In most of the fantasy literature that we read uh, and that we have featured on this, they are their own encapsulated worlds. There are people in these worlds, even with Brandon, Brandon Sanderson's Cosmere, there are people within the Cosmere. In C.S. Lewis, there are people taken from our world, transported to a magical world, and brought back. And what had happened over there doesn't necessarily stay happened over here. Um, and that is something that uh, other writers picked up on and have used um, that some of the writers that I that I read when I was growing up have used extensively. Piers Anthony wrote it, uh, dealt with that a lot in The Apprentice Adept uh, and in some of the other some of the other series that he worked with. Stephen R. Donaldson uh, in the White Gold Wielder series uh, dealt with that. Um, it was it's a really fun device. Is this like it, it was all just a dream? No. no and, in, and in fact, in all of those, they were they were very clear about the fact that it was another world. There were other things going on. But when you come back to this world, all of those same things do not still stand and you still have to deal with this world in its own terms. But what you've learned in the other world makes you better prepared for here. 
Um, I, I loved the fact that as I was reading that and I talked to my wife about it and she's like, oh, I didn't pick up on that. And I smiled and said, aha, one way that I am superior to you. To which I always thought, by the way, when you you have that experience and then come back and nothing's changed in this world, except that it's all happened in your mind, everybody else now thinks you're crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. Which is me most of the time. Um, so here's a couple fun things for you. Uh, the lion, Aslan, sorry, guys, Aslan is a lion. The lion, and we'll get a lot more into this. Oh my gosh, we'll get into this when we get to Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but uh, Christian allegory and all that. So the lion is Jesus. Yes. Well, the lion also is the symbol of, uh, well, England. Gryffindor. Yes. Convenient. No. I just, uh, it's it's fun to read mid-century England English writers who are so patriotic. And the bulldog. That, yeah. <laughs> right, and the bulldog. And the bulldog that takes the, <laughs> the lead lion on and things. the bulldog. Um, that was my, uh, as I was reading the book, my greatest source of amusement was the bulldog and the elephant and the nose <laughs> jokes that they kept having. Uh, I really appreciated those quite a lot. Um, uh, the only other thing I'll point out before we start wrapping up uh, Diggory as Tolkien. I wondered if this was a sort of kind of weird uh, wish fulfillment by proxy uh, by Lewis. So let me give you a little background. Um, J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, born in 1892, lost his mother at the age of, I want to say, 12. Uh, and so he and his, his father died when he was an, inf- an infant. Uh, so he grew up an orphan. Um, and so I wondered if Diggory was, because um, he also grew up to be a, a professor, and there there's mm-hmm. certain and little traveled, just yeah, little things that he puts in there to make me think. Oh, I wonder if he was kind of thinking of his old friend uh, Ronald when he wrote this. Um, and uh, anyway, so there's this idea that he needs to go and save his ailing mother. Uh, because obviously that is something that would have consumed a uh, a young Tolkien around the time that his mom started to ail and fail, I should say, um, and then died. And so it, it felt a little bit odd to me, and I didn't know what to make of it, but uh, but wish fulfillment by proxy, maybe, where he this is uh, Tolkien, he even wrote it around, he said it around the time that Tolkien would have been this old. Um, so he goes and visits this land of fairy and has an experience that he'll never forget. Um, and you know, maybe this sets the seeds for, uh, him to create his own fairy world and all of that stuff, uh, as he grows older. Well, it even says at one point, I, I could see that, that, uh, he will become professor Kirik or whatever his last name is. Yeah. The, the guy that created the, uh, the wardrobe, the wardrobe. Yeah. The, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, he even made him a professor at the end, so I could exactly. easily yeah. buy into this So anyway, premise. it's just kind of a fun uh, thing to keep in mind, maybe, as people read the book. And there's also some evidence that um, C.S. Lewis was represented in uh, Tolkien's work as Treebeard. Oh, right. Exactly. So yeah. they, they, did, they, they had fun with each other, slipping each other into each other's works. Right. Um, okay, we didn't really get to a lot of um, Reddit questions. Can and I get so, to one? I, do we have time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to do just a couple in the last few minutes that we have. The only the only one I wanted to touch on, and this can be my final thought if necessary, but uh, Tanuvial91 mentioned ah, something that's I mine. thought. Yeah, that was my first one. Okay. Um, can I? Yes. Okay. Uh, he, he writes... Uh, I'm going to go she on this one. She. Sorry. She. I'll go with she. 
Um, I usually go with they, but she uh, writes, Aslan notices right away that an evil has entered the land, but he does nothing to get rid of Jadis. Jadis? Okay. Why does he not just send her back to her own world uh, if her own world is already gone? It seems that she he should be powerful enough since he... Ken, you need to learn how to read, buddy. Having trouble with my eyes. That's why it took Ken longer than the rest <laughs> I'm of us. Old, yes. uh, so yeah, anyway, me... point point being, she asked the same question that I asked this, like, why don't you just send her back? But then I came to the realization as I was reading it that this isn't like other books that we have to get into the, all of the details and the and the, uh, the I have a lesser all answer. Of, all of all of the um, motivations for all of that because the the point is she needs to be there. For this story to work and, and it, the, for the allegory to work and, and for all of the symbolism to work, that's good enough for me. I didn't I didn't need to, after I went, why don't you just put on the ring, take her back and... Well, we've had Ken's out. answer. Anyway. I'd like to hear Ryan's. You kind of got to it at the end is, um, especially dealing with the idea of this being Christian allegory is this fact that evil has does have to exist. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Um, it, you can have the Garden of Eden, but nothing grow, nothing will go past the garden mm-hmm. um, without that being there to a certain extent. And I don't see a Christ figure like Aslan taking away someone else's ability to choose and do something. I mean, he's, right. he never... Aslan could have just gone and gotten the fruit. Right. It's about giving people an opportunity to make a decision and grow and do yep. something different. And that, and that's where I came to as well. I went through every single one of those as well. It's the, the, the story doesn't, isn't the point. The, the point is the point, I guess, for lack of a what point. different things, the mean moral, different things. the moral is, uh, is the point of this story. It it's is not, it the, is what it is. Words mean words. <laughs> that's right. What are you talking about? I'm, All of us old people understood <laughs> what Ken what was trying to say. Yeah. So there, when in in a few years you'll understand. I I wanted to I wanted to point out something uh, because I think Tanuviel ninety one answers her own question. Does he think that without any threats that life in Narnia is just too boring? Well, maybe that not the word choice I would have used, but it actually reminded me of our discussions. I won't spoil anything, but it reminded me of our discussions of Mistborn era two. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's the idea that without friction, without opposition. Uh, there is no progression. Yes. Or, yes. or it is severely no, slowed. It, or yep. severely slowed. Yeah, there you go. Um, and so you need <laughs> that opposition. And so there's this idea. He says, uh, he says, okay, she's going to go live in the north for a while. This tree is going to keep her away. Eventually, that's not going to work anymore. Uh, and she'll be a problem for you guys. Uh, so he gives them this incubation period. Okay, so uh, multiply and grow and etc etc and then things are going to get tough but that's where things get really good right so always anyway um okay so we're a little over an hour now maybe we should cut and run i'm trying to think if there are any other things that we need to get to from reddit um I, i think we can probably leave it sorry reddit folks if we didn't get to your question uh, but keep them coming for future books, and we will uh, make sure that we do more Reddit stuff as we go. Now, it'll certainly be easier on other ones because we've now talked about all of the C.S. Lewis backstory stuff that we need to do. Yeah. <laughs> there will be. <laughs> that's, that, that's funny that you said that. There will be lots and lots and lots more backstory. So, um, the other thing I'll mention as we go forward. Uh, at, at a certain point, yes, we are going to talk about Christianity and allegory and all this stuff. 
at no point will we ever be proselyting uh, or proselytizing. Yeah, no. No. So don't worry about that. Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm forming a new religion. It's called aviary colonoscopianism. <laughs> so anyone who wants to join, I'll give you the information. I uh, could, Do you have a pamphlet? Or uh, where do you pull that out of? <laughs> there's some There's some. Tracks. There's a backstory. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow. But yeah, there's there's a lot that we didn't... We barely even touched on the story in this one, I feel like. Um, and so Maybe we should do two on. <laughs> yeah, maybe we do. There's This is like our general Narnia episode. Um, but yeah, next time we'll talk a lot more about Christianity, a lot more about what allegory is and why it sucks lions witches and wardrobes oh my <laughs> um anyway so hope you'll hopefully you'll stick around with us for that and uh once again go to the legendarium.reddit.com to yell at us and also to ask questions and get answers and, mostly uh, to yell at us or if there's a potential other angle we know like craig's talked about you know we're going to be talking about christianity or stuff but if you have insight into other religions or other pieces that would be a similar base the, that the we fed. don't have. Yeah, give us that. We'd love to. We'd love to explore that. Um, yeah, one thing that uh, we come from, all four of us come from a very uh, specific Christian background, <laughs> a very specific Christian background, and we don't know crap about the Church of England or uh, or even. Um, uh, Gosh, Roman Catholicism, or even know. farther east, yeah. or Castro went to Titus, or I think Todd is, Todd is probably our most resident expert on other religious cultures. So. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, we do want to know about all that stuff. So, uh, whatever wisdom you have to uh, to bring, go to thelegendarium.reddit.com. After every episode, we put up a thread, uh, a discussion thread for that episode, and we would love to hear from you there. Uh, if we haven't been hearing from you yet. And also go to patreon.com slash legendarium to support the show. We very much appreciate everybody who does so. If you enjoy these episodes and if you want them to not only continue, but to multiply and grow and get on video and other things, we need the support to make all that stuff happen. And uh, video at least will be coming soon. So watch for that, everybody. And we will see you guys all in a couple of weeks for Oathbringer, Oathbringer, our first Oathbringer episode. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we will see you then. Bye.